This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. This episode is brought to you by Easy Recess, your ultimate support for the first hour of resuscitation. This amazing phone app has drug dosing, treatment algorithms, and procedural aids all in under three clicks. Rapid access to life-saving critical info in a user-friendly interface. Try the app for free with the promo code EMCASES or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCASES. That's the letters E-Z, recess.com slash EMCASES. All the way back in EM Quick Hits number 22, I covered the basics of postpartum hemorrhage management, trying to streamline and simplify things. I just recently had a case and it brought all of this back, but had some extra teaching points that I thought were worth getting into. So the case that I had was a 34-year-old woman, G5, P4, about 15 weeks, presenting with heavy vaginal bleeding and passage of fetal parts. Initial heart rate was 113, BP was 123 over 72, but EMS said that she syncopized en route. In front of us, she's ANO times three, and I know what you're thinking, is this really postpartum hemorrhage? This is actually post-abortion hemorrhage or post-miscarriage hemorrhage, but when patients with miscarriage or abortion have severe bleeding, they're going to be managed the same as postpartum hemorrhage. This can occur in spontaneous abortion, but it can also happen with medically-assisted abortion And I've seen a couple of patients presenting from a clinic with heavy bleeding exactly the same as the patient that I'm seeing now. Going back to our patient, she looked well perfused, clearly in some pain. And when we did a quick pelvic, there was significant bleeding. And so recognition here is critical. Same thing that we talked about in the original postpartum hemorrhage piece is that we have to recognize that this is in fact postpartum hemorrhage. What you're looking for is more bleeding than you would expect with a delivery or, in this case, post-abortion. Once you've made that recognition, activate your consultants, whether that be OBGYN or if you don't have them in-house, you might actually need a surgeon that can help as well if the patient continues to bleed despite the rest of your maneuvers. Next on our list is to remember the four most common causes. And we can remember this with the four T's. T1 is for tissue or retained products. T2 is for trauma. T3 is for thrombin or DIC. And then finally, our last T is for tone. Tone or uterine atony is the most common reason why patients have postpartum hemorrhage. In post-abortion hemorrhage, tone is still a common cause, but we really have to think about retained products and about DIC. Just like in postpartum hemorrhage, we're going to start with transfusion. There's no reason to give fluid to a patient who's losing blood, so we want to give them blood products in a one-to-one-to-one ratio. If we're worried about uterine atony, which we should be in all these patients, we're going to give the same set of medications we give in postpartum hemorrhage. Oxytocin, misoprostol, methergen, and carboprost. One thing that was pointed out to me by our OB colleagues in this particular case is that oxytocin doesn't have a lot of utility if the patient's less than 20 weeks, but they still will typically give it. And one of the important things with giving these meds is that we're not giving one, waiting 10 to 15 minutes to see if it works, and then give the next one. We're giving all of them en masse right up front. So give all four of those medications and strongly consider giving tranexamic acid based on the woman trial. If these maneuvers are not working, you can consider direct tamponade with something like a Bakri balloon. Often emergency departments aren't stocked with these, but if you have an OB team in-house, they likely have them. So when you call your consult to help with direct tamponade. Finally, one of the things to consider in your particular hospital is creating a mother-child care set, similar to what we have for cardiac arrest. So some sort of a drawer system where everything can be stored. All of the medications that don't require refrigeration can be there. The meds that do require refrigeration, you can put a little note in that box saying, here's the medication, here's the dose, here's where to get it. I think that can be very helpful because these are uncommon situations. It's hard to always pull this kind of information to the front of your brain. Really, the most important thing coming out of this case is the issue of recognition. We talked about it in that first podcast. Recognition is critical. Remembering from the ED perspective, post-abortion hemorrhage is going to be treated the same as postpartum hemorrhage. 
Excellent. Thanks so much, Dr. Swaminathan. One caveat to using oxytocin in postpartum hemorrhage is if the hemorrhage is associated with uterine inversion. Now, uterine inversion is relatively rare, thankfully, but almost always there's hemorrhage with it. And for uterine inversion, the key is to stop the oxytocin. So the pitfall is this. Given that uterine atony is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage and response to oxytocin, continuation of the oxytocin is a common pitfall in the management of uterine inversion. It's critical to recognize uterine inversion and stop all uterotonic medications to facilitate reduction of that uterine inversion. Otherwise, the patient will just continue to hemorrhage. All right. Next up, we have Dr. Noor Khatib on a rural case of a patient with altered LOA. I won't give it away. So, I'm driving to an overnight shift in a small town in Ontario. Middle of winter, ice cracking beneath my tires as I pull into the parking lot. Cold night, crisp air, I take a deep breath and walk in. When a lady comes running in frantically, hyperventilating and telling us that her daughter is in medical distress, not responding, can't move at all. She beat the ambulance to alert us about the dire situation. Not hard to do when you're a small town and everyone's next door. All right, let me walk you through it as I saw it. The paramedics roll in with a 22-year-old female. About 15 minutes ago, the patient was on the ground, stiff, unable to speak, and is making incomprehensible sounds. Eyes open, shaking, but appears alert. Tremulous but stiff are my two-word descriptors for this patient. Her vital signs are as follows. Temperature, 37.5. Heart rate, 122. Blood pressure, 155 on 90. O2 sat, 98%. Respirate, 28. And with the paramedics, her GCS was 10. She lost points for the incomprehensible sounds and inability to obey motor commands. Deep breaths. Before we jump into differentials for rigidity and altered LOC, let's hear what the paramedics have to say. Doc, we came in, found her completely stiff on the ground, shaking, crying. She's normally quite healthy, ran out of her antidepressants five days ago, and restarted it yesterday. She's on citalopram. She's on what? Ah, an SSRI. Could this be? Before jumping to conclusions, make sure you've considered meningitis, drug overdoses. So I hold up her leg, and I watch her ankle jerk back and forth and back and forth. Myoclonus. Classic. I speak to her boyfriend and family who were with her all day. There were no prescription drugs in the home other than this italopram. The bottle is full, except for the two pills she took yesterday and today. The last time she took it was five days ago before it ran out. She has not expressed any thoughts of suicidal ideation or low mood. She has no infectious symptoms, and it was just a quiet Saturday night where the family was settling down to watch a movie together. The only new aspect of the night was that she tried an e-cigarette device for BHO, butane hash oil, which is a concentrated form of THC. A popular trend called dabbing, no, no, not the hand gesture, rather a way of heating the concentrated THC oil and inhaling the vapors. These vapors contain a very high concentration of THC, sometimes as high as 90% pure. E-cigarettes can be used for BHO delivery as it can be easily concealed and is almost odorless. All right. So what's going on here? I've got a patient who is, for all intents and purposes, exhibiting signs of serotonin syndrome, just restarted her SSRI, and tried some high-dose Mary Jane tonight. Serotonin syndrome is a potentially fatal syndrome of rigidity and hyperpyrexia that results from the administration of serotonergic agents. It is thought to be a spectrum disorder that ranges from mild symptoms to full-blown hyperthermia and rigidity. Hunter criteria can be used to help with the diagnosis. Patient must have the presence of a serotonergic agent on board and meet one of the following conditions. Spontaneous clonus, or inducible clonus plus agitation or diaphoresis, or ocular clonus plus agitation or diaphoresis, or tremor plus hyperreflexia, or hypertonia plus temperature above 38 degrees Celsius plus ocular clonus or inducible clonus. Serotonin syndrome may show vital sign abnormalities such as tachycardia, hypertension, and hyperthermia. Physical exam findings of serotonin syndrome may reveal agitation, ocular clonus, dilated pupils, tremor, deep tendon hyperreflexia, muscle clonus, dry mucous membranes, and flushed skin with diaphoresis. 
Serotonin syndrome is believed to develop due to increased concentration of serotonin or serotonin agonists. Serotonin syndrome usually occurs shortly after an increase in the dose of a potent serotonergic agent, MAOIs or SRIs, or after the addition of a second serotonergic agent. Various drugs such as tramadol, another reason not to use it, meperidine, methadone, dexamethorphan, linzolid, and isoniazid have been associated with serotonin syndrome due to their weak SRI effects or MAOI properties. Other drugs, including herbal supplements, anticonvulsants, and antiemetics have also been associated with serotonin syndrome due to their effects on serotonin concentration. Illicit drugs like ecstasy, cocaine, and amphetamines can cause serotonin syndrome by releasing serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine in the central nervous system and inhibiting their reuptake. Cocaine inhibits serotonin metabolism similar to MAOIs. Now, there's no confirmatory laboratory tests that exist, so the diagnosis relies solely on clinical presentation. Mild cases of serotonin syndrome may be misinterpreted as psychiatric or medical disorders, while severe cases can be mistaken as a diagnosis of neuroleptic malignant syndrome. It's crucial to exclude infections such as septicemia or meningitis, as well as drug overdoses, including cocaine, SSC, lithium, or anticholinergics. Let's examine our patient. The patient exhibited dilated pupils, measuring 6 millimeters. Their neck and lung exam showed no abnormalities, and their abdomen was soft and non-tender. Heart sounds were fine, she was just tachycardic. The neurological exam indicated rigidity in both lower extremities, but the arms were spare. Deep tendon reflexes showed sustained clonus in both feet, and hyperreflexia was present in the patella tendons on both sides, while reflexes in the upper arms were normal. Alright, so what's the main goal of treatment for serotonin syndrome? Really, it's supportive care. First, discontinue all serotonergic agents, supportive care with IV fluids and benzodiazepines which act as a nonspecific serotonin antagonist. Patients are given treatment until their symptoms have resolved. Aggressive cooling measures and hydration through IV fluids should be employed to treat hyperthermia. Antipyretics use is actually quite limited because the cause of hyperthermia in serotonin syndrome involves increased muscle tone rather than central thermoregulation. Neurological symptoms, such as myoclonus, hyperreflexia, and seizures can be treated with benzodiazepines. Now, what's a talk about serotonin syndrome without mentioning ciproheptadine? Ciproheptadine can be considered as an anti-serotonergic agent for moderate or severe cases, but its use and efficacy is controversial, although it is still listed as a second-line agent. Physical restraints should not be used as they can exacerbate the patient's condition. Think of the rhabdo that may develop with the agitation, rigidity, and tremors. Restraints will make that worse. Lab results showed a normal CBC and electrolytes, elevated CK at 2000, a normal VBG, urine drug positive for THC, and an EKG that just shows sinus tachycardia. Could this be serotonin syndrome on just 20 milligrams of citalopram and a full bottle and no other medications at home? What about the high-potency THC she had? That BHO dabbing kids are doing. THC has the ability to activate serotonin receptors and inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, which can result in symptoms that resemble serotonin syndrome when used in high concentrations. Is this just a combination? THC-induced toxicity can result in various clinical pictures like psychotic states, neurotoxicity, and cardiac toxicity. Speaking to poison control that day, the recommendation was to treat the patient as serotonin syndrome, although this is likely a serotonin-like activity secondary to THC rather than full-blown serotonin syndrome. THC toxicity, as well as serotonin syndrome, may show signs of tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, tremor, clonus, and lower extremity rigidity. What happened to our patient? After multiple doses of IV Ativan, IV fluid boluses, patient's symptoms almost fully resolved by hour three of treatment. Her change in LOC, limb movement, and GCS score progressively improved within the hour, and her tremors, rigidity, and hyperreflexia resolved shortly after. Learning point. THC has the ability to activate serotonin receptors and inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, which can result in the symptoms that can resemble serotonin syndrome when used in high concentrations. As high concentrations of THC become more prevalent, ED doctors should be aware of this disease mimic. In the end, treat with supportive care, give poison control a call for further guidance. Oh, and finally, consider rural locums and join me on my next trip. Thanks so much, Dr. Katib. That was a great review of serotonin syndrome and its mimics. 
Next up, we have Dr. Katie Lynn, ED doc, stroke doc, and transport medicine doc out of Calgary, Alberta, who you may remember from her excellent talk at the last EM Cases Summit. She'll be back for another stellar talk at the next EM Cases Summit, November 2024. In addition, she'll be featured in an upcoming main episode podcast on subarachnoid hemorrhage with the world's preeminent EM subarachnoid hemorrhage researcher, Dr. Jeff Perry. Anyhow, here's Katie Lynn on traumatic brain injury and brain herniation syndromes. Let's take a dive today into the world of traumatic brain injuries and herniation syndromes, pearls and pitfalls. Imagine you were called to the trauma bay for an incoming 37-year-old patient involved in a motorcycle crash at highway speed. EMS reports that the patient has obvious bruising to his head and face, contusions to his chest, and an open femur fracture. His vital signs on scene are a GCS of 6, oxygen saturations of 82% on room air, a respirate of 20, irregular and with periods of apnea, a heart rate of 120, and a blood pressure of 80 on 50. The ETA? 15 minutes. How are you going to prep your team? What are you going to prioritize? And how does the patient's suspected traumatic brain injury impact your resuscitation approach? Things are about to get very busy, very fast. Let's go over some neuroresuscitation pearls and pitfalls to help you on your next busy trauma code. The four key messages I want to leave you with. Number one, don't forget the glucose. Two, Consider a simplified three-step neuro exam to focus only on time-sensitive critical findings. Three, recognize signs of herniation and act fast. Do not wait for imaging confirmation. Four, resuscitate the body to resuscitate the brain. Let's start with pearl number one. Don't forget the glucose. Hypoglycemia can mimic a neurologic disaster. Hypoglycemia can also cause a fall, a car crash, or any other mechanism of trauma. Hypoglycemia, thankfully, is easily correctable. Always check the glucose as part of your initial ABCDE primary survey. And if for whatever reason a glucose check is not possible or will be delayed, treat empirically with one amp, that's 50 cc's, of D50W and move on with the rest of your resuscitation. Pearl number two. Consider a simplified three-step neuro exam to focus only on time-sensitive critical findings. The neuro assessment is an important part of the primary survey, but it needs to be brief and focused on identifying time-sensitive critical findings. All we really care about in those first few moments are number one, are there impending or evolving signs of herniation? And two, are there major focal deficits present? We don't need to get fancy with it. Almost all of the information that matters most to our stroke, neurosurgery, and ICU colleagues is captured in a simple three-step approach. GCS plus eyes plus lateralizing motor response. GCS. What is the level of consciousness and is it dropping? Eyes. Are the pupils equal and reactive? Are the eyes disconjugate or deviated to one side? If the patient's unconscious, are the corneal reflexes intact? Lateralizing motor response. What kind of motor response are we seeing, and have we seen with our own eyes movements that are purposeful and equal bilaterally, or is there asymmetry or posturing present? Especially if we are pushed to rapidly intubate this patient for airway concerns, quickly taking note of these important initial findings can be invaluable for guiding decisions around definitive management later in the case, when the neuroexam may be hampered by intubated status or medication effects. It could mean the difference between a go or no-go treatment decision by the neurosurgeon or stroke consultant. Remember your three-step approach, GCS plus eyes plus lateralizing motor response. Pearl number three, recognize signs of herniation and act fast. Do not wait for imaging confirmation. The human skull is a rigid closed box, so everything gets progressively squished down and intracranial pressure, or ICP, rises. At first, the brain can compensate for this pressure increase by squeezing out CSF first. But once that CSF buffer is gone or blocked off, ICP skyrockets and the brain is on a fast track to herniation. Brain herniation is when the pressure within the skull exceeds what the tissues can accommodate and the brain itself is compressed, either sideways or downwards through the skull base. This pressure eventually exceeds the perfusion pressure of the cerebral arteries and the result is ischemia, edema, 
and inevitable brain death without timely intervention. A blown pupil is often considered the cardinal sign of herniation, but in reality, that's far too simplistic. And if that's all we're watching for, we will miss the boat on timely intervention in a lot of cases. Herniation is a dynamic process, and serial assessments are critical for early detection of deterioration. The clinical trend in a patient's neurologic status over time is often much more important than a single status assessment. Early herniation is all about recognizing symptoms of rising ICP, worsening headache, escalating or refractory nausea or vomiting, evolving focal deficits, especially if they involve cranial nerves, motor, or speech, and dropping GCS. Late herniation is all about recognizing the Cushing response and watching for pupillary changes. Remember that the Cushing response triad is a series of vital sign derangements that occur in the setting of herniation. So that's rising blood pressure, hypertension, dropping heart rate, bradycardia, and irregular respirations, including pauses or apneic spells. It's also important to note that not all herniation comes with a blown pupil. For example, subfalcine herniation often doesn't have any overt pupillary changes. It's too high up. Central herniation gives you small pinpoint pupils that are often mistaken for opioid toxidromes in the setting of low GCS. And tonsillar herniation can show up as mid-fixed, non-reactive pupils. Uncle herniation is the one that classically gives us that blown pupil, but there are lots of different herniation syndromes out there that result in different pupillary changes. We need to be looking for pupils plus clinical signs of herniation. Remember, symptoms of rising ICP or the labile vital signs of the Cushing response triad. And finally, pearl number four, resuscitate the body to resuscitate the brain. There is often concern about the competing priorities of neuroresuscitation versus the rest of the trauma resuscitation, but your goals are actually aligned. If you resuscitate the body, you will also resuscitate the brain. Your two biggest priorities in neuroresuscitation are to avoid hypoxia and avoid hypotension at all costs. That means start your supplemental oxygen early, have a lower threshold for airway capture and support, resuscitate before you intubate by aggressively managing pre-oxygenation and initiating hemodynamic support to avoid peri-intubation hypoxia or hypotension. Stay tuned for a separate EM quick hits on an approach to neuroprotective intubation. When a brain injury is suspected, there is no role for permissive hypotension. Ideally target a map of greater than 80 with aggressive blood product transfusions and early initiation of vasopressor adjuncts. And finally, do not wait for imaging confirmation before initiating ICP-lowering therapies. If there are clinical signs of herniation, consider empirically raising the head of the bed. With spinal precautions, you can still do this with reverse Trendelenburg. Initiate hyperosmolar therapy with 3% hypertonic saline at a 250cc bolus, mannitol at a 1 gram per kilogram or 50 gram empiric bolus, or even in a pinch, one amp of sodium bicarb, which is equivalent to 6% hypertonic saline solution. So remember, number one, don't forget the glucose. Two, consider a simplified three-step neuro exam to focus on time-sensitive critical findings. Three, recognize signs of herniation and act fast. Do not wait for imaging confirmation. And four, resuscitate the body to resuscitate the brain. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Easy Recess, your ultimate support to save lives during the first hour of resuscitation. Picture this. You're faced with intubating a seizing child, managing a peri-arrest patient with a beta blocker overdose, or resuscitating a breathless premature newborn. Calculating doses, setting up drips, choosing the right equipment, and remembering each step can be overwhelming. Easy Recess changes the game. Download Easy Recess today. Use promo code EMCASES, that's one word, E-M-C-A-S-E-S, to get your first two months free or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCASES for more details. And Easy Recess is E-Z-R-E-S-U-S. In this CGEM Quick Hits, we continue our discussion on inflammatory bowel disease with a focus on ulcerative colitis. This is based on the article, Just the Facts, How to Assess and Manage Ulcerative Colitis Exacerbations in the Emergency Department. The hallmark feature of 
a UC exacerbation is bloody diarrhea, which should raise suspicion for the diagnosis, especially in previously undiagnosed patients. However, it's important to note that diarrhea can occur without blood when inflammation is less severe. Other common symptoms include increased stool frequency, urgency, tenesmus, and abdominal discomfort. In cases where inflammation is limited to the rectum, known as proctitis, urgency and tenesmus may be the primary symptoms. Additionally, approximately 10-30% to 30% of patients develop extraintestinal manifestations. These can include skin manifestations such as erythema nodosum or pyoderma gangrenosum, musculoskeletal system presentations such as arthritis, or presentations involving the eyes such as episcleritis, uveitis, and iritis. Complications of UC can be quite serious. Patients are at increased risk of venous thromboembolism, so vigilant monitoring is essential. Rare complications can also include severe bleeding, toxic megacolon, and bowel perforation. Prompt recognition and management of UC exacerbations are crucial to prevent these complications. In the emergency department, it is important to consider conditions that can mimic or exacerbate UC. C. diff and enteropathogens such as E. coli, salmonella, and campylobacter can mimic UC exacerbations. Other conditions that can mimic UC include ischemic colitis, sexually transmitted infective proctitis, radiation proctitis, medication-associated colitis, diverticular disease, and colorectal cancer. When assessing a patient with a UC exacerbation, laboratory investigations play a vital role. CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, liver enzymes, albumin, ESR, and CRP provide insights into the disease severity and complications. Fecocalprotectin, a protein found in stool samples, can be a useful biomarker for luminal inflammation. However, its availability may be limited to outpatient settings at most locations. Testing for C. diff and enteropathogens should also be performed on all patients who are suspected to have a UC exacerbation or first-time presentation. In terms of imaging, plain abdominal x-ray can be valuable for screening patients with severe disease for toxic megacolon. Colonic dilatation greater than 5 cm or small bowel dilatation greater than 3 cm increases the likelihood of colectomy. However, routine use of CT imaging for UC is not recommended unless there is a significant suspicion of bowel perforation or obstruction. Prompt treatment of a UC exacerbation is crucial to prevent complications and long-term issues such as dysplasia. Severe exacerbations, the presence of complications, and a lack of response to corticosteroid therapy are indications for hospital admission. Mild to moderate exacerbations and selected severe cases with treatment options available and reliable follow-up may be managed as outpatients in collaboration with their specialist. The management of a UC exacerbation in the emergency department involves identifying complications, correcting fluid and electrolyte imbalances, stopping offending agents, treating concomitant infections, and controlling intestinal inflammation. NSAIDs and other offending agents should be held. Treatment of C. diff and other enteric pathogens is essential due to the risk of toxic megacolon. The use of corticosteroids remains a cornerstone of the treatment of moderate to severe UC exacerbations, while 5-aminosalicylates can be considered for mild to moderate cases. Individualized treatment decisions, including the choice of medication, require an understanding of the disease location, severity, and prior treatments. As such, involvement of a gastroenterologist in these cases is usually indicated. Corticosteroids such as oral prednisone or budesonide MMX are commonly used for moderate to severe exacerbations. Patients already on UC therapies may benefit from treatment optimization, such as increasing 5-ASA dosage or adjusting biologic therapy. So in summary, the hallmark of a presentation of UC is bloody diarrhea. We should be on the lookout for mimics, especially bacterial infections, and work them up appropriately. In cases of exacerbations, the workup includes blood work and selective imaging. And finally, management will likely include either 5-ASA or steroids. Also, these management decisions should usually be performed in conjunction with a GI specialist. Some great reminders there from Hans Rosenberg on what we need to know about ulcerative colitis. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosenberg. 
And if you haven't already, go back to EM Quick Hits 51 to listen to his review on Crohn's, which has its own particular considerations. All right, next up, we've got some peds for you. And this time it's part of our best of University of Toronto EM series. And we have the return of Heather Carey from Hospital for Sick Children, who you might remember from her great quick hit on abdominal pocus in pediatric trauma. This time, she's going to give us the lowdown on the controversial topic of C-spine immobilization in kids. And now for the best of University of Toronto Emergency Medicine. Thanks, William Anton. So in this quick hit, I want to talk to you about spinal motion restriction. There are two main issues. One is using the 20-degree tilt instead of a 90-degree log roll. And the second is the use of hard collars. So we probably all agree on who to use spinal motion restriction on. Essentially, ask yourself, is the child symptomatic? So do they have focal neurological deficit, spinal tenderness, an anatomical deformity, or torticollis? Can you trust them to tell you that they're asymptomatic? Then it's, are they altered, intoxicated, or have significant pain medication, or have they got a significant distracting injury? Is there a high-risk mechanism, like diving, axial load, a clothesline, or a high-risk motor vehicle collision? Are there predisposing conditions, like trisomy 21 or osteogenesis imperfecta? Or is there a substantial torso injury? So let's say we've decided to use spinal motion restriction. What techniques are best? I'll start with the 20-degree tilt, because it's relatively simple. The rationale laid out by the 2015 APLS update is minimal handling. So there is danger in log-rolling an unstable patient. And the reason 20 degrees was suggested was because it's the maximum angle required to use a scoop stretcher. The rationale is that you avoid disrupting your first clot and an unstable pelvis. Its use is intended for blunt trauma, so for penetrating trauma, further investigation is required if there's blood underneath the patient. Now, how do you go about actually doing it? First of all, you need to instruct your team that you're only going to 20 degrees, and this can be a good bit more challenging than it sounds. It may require practice in a simulated environment, because even when you say 20 degrees, the team will often roll to about 45. So let's say your patient is now rolled 20 degrees, and you are the person examining the spine. You need to bring your eyes down to the level of the bed. Move your body, not the patient's body. And from this perspective, you'll be able to see everything you need to, and you'll be able to move your hand along the patient's spine in order to palpate for any findings. So that's the 20-degree tilt, a nice easy way of keeping your hemodynamically stable child stable by not disrupting anything in the abdomen by tipping them over by 90 degrees. So now to the meat and potatoes. Cervical motion restriction and losing the hard collar. When I was a lifeguard, I learned how to do a collar, blocks, and tape. In North America, it seems like we've gotten rid of the blocks and tape, while in the UK and Ireland, they've kept the blocks and tape and gotten rid of the collar. Is there evidence to support this practice? Oh boy, is there. So let's start by seeing what the practice in the UK and Ireland is. So we would use manual inline stabilization until we can apply blocks and tape. This means that the neck is available to examine both anteriorly and during a 20 degree tilt, and you can use manual inline stabilization for your airway maneuvers. Before you apply the blocks and tape, examine the neck for things like distended neck veins, tracheal deviation, wounds, laryngeal crepitus, and subcutaneous emphysema. Then, while one person maintains manual inline stabilization, place a head block on either side of the head and apply tape as a head strap and attach it securely to the stretcher. This means tape all the way down to the metal on the stretcher either side, making sure that you're not attaching it to the cot sides. And then a second strap across the chin, again, attaching it securely to the stretcher. Now, there are exceptions to using blocks and tape. Overzealous immobilization of the head and neck may paradoxically increase leverage of the head and neck if a child is struggling. So in that situation, you just continual manual inline stabilization and address the factors that are causing the child to be uncooperative. These include severe pain and hypoxia. Also, patients with traumatic torticollis should be manually mobilized in their current position. When it comes to hard collars, APLS says there's no proven benefit and there is possible harm. For adults in the UK, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine says the combination of a collar and blocks and tape is the gold standard. Blocks and tape are an acceptable alternative, but just a hard collar is never acceptable. So what evidence is there to suggest blocks and tape are the way to go? Let's start by asking if hard collars actually help. There's a study by Dixon et al. in 2015 that showed that self-extrication from a vehicle caused less movement than five immobilization techniques. 
A study by Halle in 2012 showed that the addition of a collar to blocks did not significantly improve restriction and that blocks were significantly better than a collar alone. A study by Wempler et al. in 2016 showed that transporting a patient using a longboard and blocks resulted in more movement than just a stretcher and blocks. And a study by Hauswald et al. in 1998 showed no difference in clinical outcome for restriction versus no restriction during transport. Although the study compared a center in New Mexico with a study in Malaysia and the two groups were not fully equivalent. So, do collars help? No. The next question is, do collars hurt? And the answer to this question appears to be yes. So, we know collars impact airway and neck assessment, limit exposure for vascular and front of neck axis, and increase the difficulty of airway management. This has been shown in simulation studies such as Yuck et al. in 2018, and Durga et al. also showed that it takes longer to manage the airway and requires more maneuvers. Hard collars may also raise ICP, with studies showing increased optic nerve sheath diameter on point-of-care ultrasound. Hard collars and backboards may compromise respiratory function with decreased lung capacity and spirometry parameters. Hard collars also impact your physical exam. In fact, Marchadal took 20 healthy volunteers and placed them in a hard collar on a backboard. After 30 minutes, one person had point tenderness, and after 60 minutes, 18 of them did. Holla showed that there is increased motion in the high cervical spine, especially when the mouth is open. Remember, that C1 to C3 is where children are most commonly injured, so that's the last place we need increased movement. Other problems include incomplete stabilization due to the mobile shoulder girdles. Collars impact your radiography, so it's impossible to take an odontoid peg radiograph, and the plastic decreases the quality of the lateral film. Continuing on, pressure on the mandible closes the mouth, and there's pressure on the ribs and clavicles, which causes pain, especially if they're fractured. All of these add up to harms with no benefit. So what about taking it one step further? In Australia, specifically the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, they're not using hard collars, but what they are using is a big yellow sign to remind healthcare professionals that the C-spine isn't cleared, and they're adding in a soft collar just to help with that reminder only. And by soft collar, I mean a big foam ring, not a semi-rigid collar. And the use of a soft collar as a reminder that the C-spine hasn't been cleared is advocated by British pre-hospital services. In Australia, they're also using a thoracic elevation device for anyone under 8 in order to achieve a neutral position of the spine. And they say that sandbags or foam blocks can be used, but should never be taped. So, final TLDR on hard collars? They're not as effective as blocks and tape for spinal motion restriction and have significant potential for harm. This seems pretty clear-cut to me. I would lose the hard collar and use manual inline stabilization until I get my blocks and tape. Keep in mind, the changeover in Ireland and the UK wasn't instantaneous. We were still receiving patients in hard collars from the pre-hospital crews for a while, and you just have to take off the collar and use manual inline stabilization instead. Waves of change are happening, and when it comes to pediatric C-spine injury, we're in the midst of a wave for the better. Back for our second time is our global EM lead, Dr. Nav Saucy, my friend and colleague from North York General Hospital in Toronto, uh, and he is the lead author for the global EM or GEM blog. Now, this time we're going to dig into humanitarian work and how humanitarian work differs to development work. We're going to talk a little bit about Doctors Without Borders and the International Committee of Red Cross or ICRC, the two biggest humanitarian organizations. We're going to talk a little bit about what it takes to do humanitarian work and the benefits that you get from doing it. So first, Dr. Saucy, let's get some definitions out of the way. What is humanitarian work and what is humanitarian work compared to, say, development work when it comes to global health? Hi, Anton. Happy to be back on your podcast again. I think people confuse the two terms or they're frequently combined as the same sort of work, meaning people think humanitarian work and development work both fall under the realm of global health work. But they're very different in terms of their goals and their their missions, really. And so humanitarian work tends to be more short-term. So the priority is more about the immediate relief of suffering caused by things like a, a natural disaster or war or a political crisis, where development work aims more for long-term change. So it focuses more on systemic issues like education or poverty alleviation and etc. 
So maybe a quicker way to think about that is that humanitarian work is more about short-term alleviation of suffering and development work is more about longer-term systemic change. Makes sense. And you've done a bit of both, right? Primarily, I've worked in the humanitarian space. All right. So that's perfect because that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this quick hit. I imagine that a prerequisite for doing humanitarian work is having the motivation to do it in the first place. And there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on when you, I'm sure when you arrive at a war-torn area or a place that's just had some terrible natural disaster. What do you suggest listeners out there who might be interested in doing humanitarian work do when it comes to uh, sort of the motivation to do it in the first place? Good question, Anton. I think the first thing people should do is reflect a little bit on their own personal motivations for doing this kind of work. Because we as emergency medicine physicians often like challenge and you know seek these adrenaline-fueled situations. And certainly humanitarian work in a you know difficult situation, a challenging place can give you some of that. However, I think if you go into these kind of projects with the wrong sort of motivations, you can end up either having significant difficulty or or finding yourself quite unfulfilled because the work is not going to be what you expect it to be once you're in the field. And so I think people should look into why they specifically want to, let's say, work in a developing context for several months and think about their own intrinsic motivations. So what I mean by that is if they're motivated by, let's say, the challenge of it or the fact that it looks cool or that it's going to look good on a resume or some other sort of extrinsic factor, to be honest, they're not going to be fulfilled with the work because it's really challenging. And I think you have to really want to do it for the right reasons because, you know, when you're sleeping in a tent in a refugee camp for six months, I mean, those things are just not going to give you what you need. And so I think the people who do best are the people who have true intrinsic motivations, like the genuine need to to do good, to relieve suffering, to work in difficult populations or with vulnerable populations in a, in, in a context and to genuinely do good. I think people who are drawn to the work for real authentic reasons, like a genuine desire to make a difference, I think they're going to thrive when the work becomes challenging because inev- inevitably it's going to be much more challenging than you expect. All right. Yeah. I mean, any self-help book that you read uh, will tell you that if you have true intrinsic motivation for something, that's one of the keys to happiness. So mm-hmm. uh, I totally get that. Let's talk about some of the personal skills that are required for humanitarian work. You know, you, you mentioned sleeping in a refugee camp in a tent for six months. That takes a little bit of camping experience, I would think, mm-hmm. for example. So I'm sure there's some listeners out there who've never camped in their life. What, what are some of the personal skills that you kind of need before you decide you want to do humanitarian work? Well, it's true that you know, you really don't know how you're going to be in a context you've never been in before until you're there. So in some sense, it's hard to truly prepare for exactly what it's going to be like. But I think it's important to think about who you are as a person and how you handle both novel situations and difficult situations. And so some things to think about are, you know, how do you handle stress and how do you handle working in extremely stressful situations? Are you drawn to these situations or do you, you know, try to avoid them? You know, are you really good at working with a team? Something that people don't know about humanitarian work is that actually the majority of the difficulty in these places actually have to do with interpersonal issues, meaning you're in really close quarters with a very select group of people for a long period of time. And so if you're not good at managing relationships and difficult personalities, then actually that's going to cause you more stress than the location or the temperature or the food or any of those kind of things. So are you a person who's good with interpersonal situations or are you kind of like a solo person who doesn't really want to deal with others? You know, are you good at dealing with uncertainty? Often in these projects, you're, you know, the length of time might change, your, your actual position might change, the type of medicine you practice might change. And so you have to be okay with being quite flexible. And of course, how are you at you know, working and living overseas in a you know, developing context? Can you handle living in a tent and a place where you don't know the culture or food or context? And so if you haven't had those experiences, then you may want to have them before you know whether or not you have the skills required for humanitarian work. It sounds like every one of those skills, except for the very last one, is exactly what it takes to be a successful emergency doctor. You know, being okay with unpredictable situations, 
working well in very stressful environments and working well as a team is exactly what it takes to be a successful emergency doctor. Totally. I, I think emergency doctors are actually perfectly primed to be excellent humanitarian workers. And actually find in the field, you'll find a lot of emergency doctors there because naturally we have the skills that translate well to humanitarian work. Yeah, perfect. It sounds like uh, peanut butter and jam, emergency medicine and <laughs> humanitarian work. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I've often heard from people who are interested in doing humanitarian work that they want to do it, but that if you want to work for Doctors Without Borders, for example, that you can't just call them up and say, okay, I want to work there because you need experience. And it's it's that catch-22 of, well, if you don't have experience, how do you get the first gig in the first place? So do you have any suggestions of how to get started in doing humanitarian work if you know it'll be difficult to, say, just jump into a big mission for MSF? I totally agree, Anton. A large medical organization like MSF, Doctors Without Borders, has a recruiting pool that is essentially the world. So they get doctors from all around the world. And as a result, they're not just seeking anybody. They're seeking somebody who has the qualifications needed to work in a developing context with the skills and knowledge and experience required. And so you do have to have some sort of background before you're able to be a successful applicant with a group like MSF. So what do you do to get a a background like that? Well, firstly, you have to have some sort of global health experience. And there are an indefinite number of organizations that a person can work with to get some sort of global health experience starting from small local NGOs to larger NGOs. And so I, in, our, in the blog I read, wrote, I listed some of the larger NGOs that uh, you can consider reaching out to or looking into, and that might be a great place to start. The other thing that I've realized through my experience is that it's really helpful to have some sort of educational background that allows you to practice medicine in areas that you know, we don't really know a lot about. And so, you know, in North America, we're, we're really not given a lot of education when it comes to tropical medicine. I knew nothing about diseases like schistosomiasis and leishmaniasis and disseminated tuberculosis. And when I first went into these global contexts, to be honest, I, f- I felt like I didn't have a lot to contribute because a lot of the pathology I was seeing, I really knew nothing about. And so as a result, throughout my training, I got a diploma in tropical medicine which was a, like a three-month course specifically designed for doctors who are Western-trained who want to work in the tropics. And I found that was a really, really good background that allowed me to work in new and different places with some sort of background in you know, developing world medicine. And I also listed a bunch of really great programs that you can look into if you're interested in uh, doing a diploma course because I found that to be a great background. Fantastic. So we'll have those all listed in the show notes. I want to talk about some practical things like, let's say you're married and you have two toddlers at home. I can't imagine that going to do humanitarian work would be very practical. In terms of time commitment, what kind of time commitment in order to develop at least somewhat of a career in global emergency medicine, humanitarian work, what kind of time commitment is there? And in terms of, you know, when would you suggest trying to get started? And what are the kind of age groups that you see doing humanitarian work? It's a very good question. And it's one that I think surprises people the most. The large medical humanitarian organizations like Doctors Without Borders and the Red Cross actually require a lot more time than people think. And so for a first mission, the minimum amount of time required is six months. And it's not six months when you want or when you're free. It's basically a six-month period of availability that may come up on short notice. So it's, in other words, when they have six months available for you, you have to be kind of ready to leave everything and, and drop things on short notice, which is really, really hard for most of us because we have jobs and commitments and families, et cetera. And so as a result... You'll find people taking part in humanitarian work when they have periods of greater flexibility in their lives, which commonly tends to be in sort of two peaks. One early career, you know, say roughly between you know, between like 25 and 35 when so people are, you know, pre-kids or, or in early marriage, et cetera. And then there is a second peak, and you'll you'll see it frequently, which is late career, 
55 to 70, for instance, where you'll see doctors who are new empty nesters going to the field uh, to finally live out the stream that they may have put off for some time. Okay. So I guess a key point there is that you can be called at any minute. You can't dictate when you're going to go. You need to kind of sort that out with, you know, the chief of your department, your hospital, et cetera, in advance, have something in place that your situation at home can handle you just leaving for six months at a time. Yeah. Before I've done any of these projects, I mean, the first place I've gone to is my department. I'm very fortunate to work in a department that's been very supportive of this kind of work, but you certainly have to pre-arrange being able to leave on short notice and being able to go for a long period of time. So negotiating that with a group that's supportive is uh, key. Our group at North York General is very proud of Dr. Saucy's work that he does overseas. So, uh, so yeah, absolutely. Our, our, our group is all, all for Dr. Saucy taking off for six months. <laughs> Any other tips you'd give listeners out there who might be interested in doing humanitarian work besides what we've talked about already? Sure. I think a, a key thing that's often a key word that's tossed around the humanitarian uh, world a lot, sometimes in jest, is the term, quote unquote, flexibility. And uh, what's meant by that is that there's almost no straightforward way a humanitarian project will go. Inevitably, it'll be different than what you have planned for and predict. So either the length of time that you've committed will change, the context will change, the work that you do within the context will change, the people you work, you work with will change. So no matter how hard you prepare, there's a sense that you need to be you know, prepared to be unprepared. And as a result, it's really good to go into these kind of projects with an open mind, because no matter how hard you prepare, it's going to be different than what you expect. In a lot of ways, better than what you expect, and in other ways, much, much more challenging than you could have ever expected. And so I think having a real open mind and being quote-unquote flexible is really key to having a successful time doing this kind of work. Yeah, I imagine each time you come back from one of these humanitarian uh, missions that you might not even realize it in yourself, but you must grow as a person and being able to handle new situations and challenging situations and all other kinds of aspects of your life. Absolutely. I'd say sometimes you don't realize how much you've been impacted by this kind of work. I'd say the biggest thing in me is that when you've been in these extreme situations, situations that we deal with in North America that we would maybe previously, maybe I previously would have found stressful, just don't seem that stressful in a larger context. And as a result, I'm better able to deal with stresses in our day-to-day life because within a larger context, we have it really good here. And uh, there's a lot to be grateful for. And so, yeah, as a result, I feel a, generally a, a greater sense of gratitude towards the, you know, the lives we get to live in this world. And our problems don't seem so big once you've seen what other people have to deal with. On that positive note, thanks so much, Dr. Saucy. We'll see you next time on EM Cases. My pleasure, Anton. Mm-hmm.